since we recorded this episode. Unfortunately, uh, the horror world has lost an icon with the passing of Sid Haig. Everybody here at Mass Movement would like to extend our condolences to Susie and Sid's family. I had the pleasure of meeting him a few times and he was such a lovely guy. And obviously he he lives on in his movies, but he'll never be forgotten here at Mass Movement. So uh, rest in peace, Sid, and thanks for everything. And welcome to episode four. Thank you once again to everybody who's been listening, either on the Mass Movement website and to everybody who's downloaded the show on Podbean. I'm Chris. I'm joined, as always, by Tim Cundall. That's me. We've got another stacked show for you today, including an interview with Isaac, the guitarist from Kentucky's finest hardcore band, Knock Loose. And we'll be talking, as always, about the current happenings in Geekdom. And we'll have an exclusive interview with the authors of the Time Shard series, Dana Fredsty and David Fitzgerald. That's them. So should we dive straight in, Tim? I, I, I think so. I mean, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about hardcore etiquette and the way people behave with shows. Well, yeah, I mean... As related to us. <laughs> I, I was going to say something about your ass being well-known on the South Wales scene. Well, it's not South But Wales, I won't say that. But it, it, it does sound kind of odd. It makes yeah. it sound like I'm cheap. I'm not cheap. So I won't say that, and this will be edited out. three beers, not two. <laughs> so, yeah, show etiquette is something we want to get into first, wasn't it? Well, there's lots of different parts of show etiquette, but... I think the one you're referring to is it's from arse pinching. Arse pinching. And this is from a male perspective and a female. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah from my perspective. Okay. Um, I am the one who had my arse pinched. So this is a occasion. unique thing to you. This is something that happened. Well, to I, you. I don't know if it's unique to me. I don't know how many asses the lady in question pinched. You know, it was just <laughs> let's pinch a load and see who reacts. Okay. But um, yeah, so we used to go shows over in Bristol, and there's a venue called the Junction, which yeah, doing well. was, was punk rock. And when certain punk shows were on there, a girl used to work the door. And every time I'd go in to this show, or whichever show it was, and I'd go past her, she'd pinch my ass, right? And I would always react by turning around, quite indignantly, to say, how dare you, madam, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But she'd just stand there and wink at me. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, it's quite disarming then. Because yeah. you start to realise, you know, you're, you're, you're a bloke who went from his late 20s into his 30s while this is happening and drifted towards his 40s and you're thinking, ah, that's all right. I don't mind this because when you get in reach now, you're thinking, if anybody finds you attractive enough to pinch your ass, it's a happy day. <laughs> and okay. it is. It's a really happy day. Okay. But you just start to think, is the show environment any different from anywhere else? And obviously it's not because people are just like, you know, you just, because you're punk, you're not any better. And I, I was, to be honest with you, I was completely flattered by the fact that I was getting my ass pinched by this girl. And she fulfilled my main criteria, which so, is, could she knock me out? Oh, right. yeah. Okay. That's the first thing you look for a woman. Can you? Can she knock me out? Yeah. She can knock me out. That, that's <laughs> she <laughs> didn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so rather than be disgusted, rather than sort of this... I was not appalled. I was anything but appalled. I was like, I was... Titillated is probably the wrong word. Um, so when was this? This flattered. was... Oh, so this was... Years, oh, God, it's not that far back, am I? Old am I? No, um, so it would be maybe 1999 through 2010. So, what, so this was a 10 year sort oh, of yeah, yeah, campaign like, she it, raised it, against it, you? It was, yeah, a, a 10 year. That's how many times you got your ass pinched. You know, I, I, wow. Collect, the collective bruises could have filled both cheeks 20 times over in the, in the period. Didn't you ever ask her why? Didn't you ever? No, I was, you know. I am not because I'm married. I, I never thought of saying, "Madam, how dare you?" I also thought, "Madam, how dare you?" You know, well, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. James thing because it's just 
it wasn't something I thought about doing. I just sort of went, oh, okay. Oh. Did you witness the accused <laughs> doing to everybody else? No. I, I, I caught it saying she's the accused. It's, it's kind of mean, I think. <laughs> she made you happy. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of things make me happy. Uh, waking <laughs> up in the morning makes me happy. <laughs> Knowing I'm still alive makes me happy. Every Saturday we go, every day is a gift. And you just sort of plow on. So arse pinching. Arse pinching is, is definitely allowed, I think. If you're okay, it's okay if you're a male over a certain age. I think, yeah, it's okay if you're happy enough to, if, if the recipient is happy enough to have it done to them, then absolutely it's all right by me. Because okay. I was more than happy enough to have it done to me. Crack on. Pinch, 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 pinch. So if, should anybody bump into you at a gig? I didn't say anybody. Say hello. My, I did. Pinch your cheek. Well, I would I would prefer it if you said hello first, you know, maybe shook my hand and then Pour pinch my ass afterwards, yeah. You'd have to buy me a beer. I might buy you one if you pinch my ass. I think, you know. <laughs> Quid pro quo. Brilliant. Okay, well, I think this should be like a regular thing, uh, show etiquette. Oh, my God. There's, there's so many bloody yeah. rules in hard rock. Everybody says, oh, there's no rules in punk rock. There are so many rules in punk rock. That you just oh, my God, there is, yeah. It's like a, it's like a 1,200-page rule book. Yeah. Subsection A, paragraph B. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What now? But yeah, there are so many rules in hardcore that I think it's definitely going to come up over time. Everybody's got a different take on it. Everybody's got different rules. So Next time, where do you stand in the pit? <laughs> At the back, as far away from people as possible. And I, I, I would tell you that I'll, at one point, I'll tell you the bad religion personal bubble story, which is quite good. Okay, cool. Hi, this is James from Widows, and you're listening to the Mass Movement Podcast, you lucky devils. This week, you got the call. happened to you i got a phone call yeah you got a call you're gonna be on i don't know when they're gonna have to call me back because it clashed with something i've got to do in london okay um in a month and a half go on in who's called you the chase yay bradley walsh's tv show did bradley phone you himself no it's some dude called jack very pleasant chap yeah um one afternoon i was bored and i filled this thing in Literally, for, for, for a gig on like all the most ridiculous things I could think of on myself on this form. And I sent it off. And when I told my wife and my daughter, they both sort of looked horrified at me and said, you'd hate it. You'd hate it. You can't do that. You don't want to be on television. You don't function well in, in front of big crowds. You'd be rude and obnoxious. <laughs> this you, is good TV as far as I'm concerned. Oh, it's, you know, um, but it's, it's like car crash TV, wouldn't it? It's not, yeah. it's not good TV for a teenage girl. My, my daughter, she'd be like you've ruined my life and all that kind of thing just because yeah. I've made a complete bloody tit of myself on <laughs> television and absolutely ruined things for her but uh, my wife was the same way she's like you would you would hate it I've been on television once before and a teenage thing was from TJ's years and years ago so they called up and asked me questions I was thinking am I going to do this am I going to do that and I know somebody who's been on the chase Roy from um, Hacksaw Hacksaw yeah, yeah yeah of course yeah shout out and to Roy was, Big shout out to Roy because Roy's awesome and he just said um, bum roll, bum roll, bum roll. <laughs> plus Roy is the biggest Eurovision fan I've ever met yeah. every single year he's out there with Eurovision and he's become again one of my daughter's heroes what's Roy think about this year's lineup for Eurovision because her and her friends live it they spend the night all dressed up and they actually pay heed to what Roy says and like Roy's predictions for Eurovision this year I did exactly the same thing I watched you I'm not a Eurovision fan Right. I saw Roy going on about it and he had all these predictions right. And his guide, yeah, and it was it was fun. It was a uh, tongue in cheek. It was a bit fun. 
and I thought I'm going to watch this and I went and Roy was spot on oh, he's absolutely so, spot uh, on that's what Siobhan and, and her mate said they were like yeah Roy knows what he's talking about so we'll just follow Roy's predictions and Roy said uh, with the chase you don't have to worry about it because they don't film in front of a TV audience they get really? you in no they get you in and they bang out three or four of these a day so they get you in you're, you know, if you pass the audition, and Lord knows what the audition involves, what kind of tortures and you know <laughs> depravity is, is brought up in that <laughs> environment, they get you in, they audition you, and then they send you on. You know, if you make it through, you go into the court, and they're teamed up with people who are probably the exact antithesis of you. You know what I mean? So okay. I would end up with some somebody from some Nazi party or something like that, complete <laughs> opposites. You know, some Brexit lunatic and some some old people who don't know their ass from their elbow, and so. <laughs> They team you up so you've got a, a chance of winning, but not the greatest chance of winning, you know. So, and the idea is if you beat the chaser and you get your money, they pack you off, cut your checks, send you on your way. Now, if that's the case, I'll happily do it, yeah, because I don't mind making a knob of myself in front of four or five people. That's that's quite, I'm quite happy to do that. And then on television, it's just on once and then bunged on to like Dave or Watch or Quiz or whatever it is and to do the endless repeats until the day I die. Now, I don't know if I get appearance fees and that, but it'd be nice if I did. I'm not a member of SAG or anything. Do I get a repeat check? You know, like 20 pence turns up in a post every every so often. You were on Dave 16 times this week. There's your 20 pence. <laughs> that would be all right. So, live what's on the money we talking? What's the top prize in the chase? I have no idea. Like, they win it after 100 grand, man. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, but it's nice. between four people. So, if you want, like, got a 100 grand pot, you'd have 25 each. But chances are you're not coming away with anything. It's by the time you got to the chase the, the final chase there's only two or three of you and you've got to ask as many questions as you possibly can and set time limit and the chaser answers as many questions as she po- or he possibly can and set time limit and then if you answer more than the chaser does you win the money That's if right, the chaser yeah. answers more than you you don't win the money you know so it's it's, it's all it's, just general knowledge isn't it it's all so, just general knowledge yeah yeah you know and i imagine you'd be pretty hot, hot at that yeah well we'd see you know, <laughs> if it was like Star Wars 1977 to 1980 <laughs> I I'm, I'm give me the money on now I'm winning, money I'm now. winning so just pay up and I'll be on my way <laughs> yeah. thank you Bradley yeah so um, maybe at some point in the future they'll call me they said they would so we shall see but like I said I had a clash of dates and a conflict of interest so I can't do it I'll stream that live when that happens when it's on TV we'll stream that live will we now on mass movement you come down and film me well that's all good like Okay, so uh, moving on, you had a chance this week to speak to uh, Dana Fredstein and David Fitzgerald. Oh, man. They're the authors of the Time Shard series. Right, the, so the new, the second book, Shadow War. Shadow War, yeah. Um, it's a fantastic concept, where time is broken and rearranged itself in out of order. So one minute, one minute you could be in medieval England, travel. 500 yards and you're in 2000 BC. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's about a ragtag book group of heroes from all over time trying to basically set time to write again and fix what was broken the first book was outstanding it was um, like absolutely flutterer in a, in a few evenings oh they're just they, they're just the books are fantastic and yeah. the people they are incredible and finding out that one of them David writes historical biblical fact for atheists and that Dana was the sword mistress on Army of Darkness was just like the icing on the cake because these two these cool. two people are brilliant they're absolutely fantastic and I can't recommend their books enough so yeah this is dan and this is david hi there this is h from acid rain and you are listening to the mass movement podcast because you're a sensible clever smart individual okay so every story starts somewhere so would you like to introduce yourselves to the folks in mass movement land and tell us a little bit about yourselves dave you go first all right 
Hey there, I'm Dave Fitzgerald, and uh, basically I, I'm an author of nonfiction and fiction, and our latest fiction is the Time Shards Trilogy. All right, I'm going to be more interesting than that. <laughs> I'm Dana Fresky. Um, I am an ex, not the movie actress, but the movie actress, maybe. Um, okay. I did some in Hollywood, and... Uh, she says that, but tell them what movie you were in. Oh, I was in Army of Darkness. Which, really? Uh, you you in Army of Darkness? Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi I was, Army? I was a sword fighting Jedi and I was part of the Army of Darkness. Wow, um, that, that is so it, cool. It, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I write fiction and uh, I've got my Ashley Parker trilogy which is basically Bucky meets the Walking Dead. I've got my Spawn of Lilith series uh, which is about a stunt woman in Hollywood who also fights demons, and then I'm writing the Time Shards trilogy with Dave. Right. Okay. So, what what made you both want to start being writers? What what made you want to start? Who or what inspired you to want to start telling stories? Um, I've been. I wanted to write since I was old enough to string words together. It's just been something that I've always done, always wanted to do. Um, I deviated from it for a while to do the acting and the sword fighting, uh, but I always came back to it. I just, I love reading and I love writing. Right. Dave? And I kind of feel that way too, that even as a kid, I always knew I was going to be an author. But in actual fact, what got me started on my writing um, career is that uh, when me and Dana were dating, uh, she was down in San Diego. I was up here in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And we would send each other sexy stories <laughs> okay and without telling me she took one of the stories I wrote for her turned it into her publisher and said hey what do you think of this guy's work here I was writing for a company called Ravenous Romance at the time which is a spicy genre fiction <laughs> <laughs> and uh, long story short I wrote for the book for about what eight years I guess oh I don't even remember the year um, anymore and uh, in the meantime I was doing a bunch of uh, non-fiction for um get this biblical history okay um, I liked it. <laughs> so for a while there um, my cocktail party joke was yeah I write two things biblical history and, and erotica I guess what smells better <laughs> but, this, but the joke was on me because then I came out with a book called Nailed 10 Christian Myths that showed Jesus never existed at all <laughs> and that blew away everything I'd ever written in erotica before and oh. so now the joke is I don't have time to write erotica I'm busy doing <laughs> history and science fiction okay so let's talk about time shards this, this ongoing series it's, it's, it's this wonderful idea of time being shattered and being seemingly irreversibly, irreversibly broken and folding itself it's almost like an allegory for the social ecological and political turmoil and disasters the world's currently beset by was that sort of your intention when you started the series to use it as a literary mirror to try and reflect on these things Right. But um, the itself um, came yeah. from an idea I had. You want to tell me the story? So, yeah, yeah. It's just a, the idea came before our countries were, <laughs> were taken over by, by Trump, <laughs> etc. Um, we were driving home from Comic Con in San Diego, and Dave was telling me about this idea he had for a role playing game, a tabletop role playing game, which was the concept of time shards. And you guys are gamers. As, you guys are gamers as well. Mm-hmm. Your game is too. That's right. 
Oh, yeah. that is so cool. Yeah. We're geeks. We're big old geeks. We're big old fat happy geeks. So anyway, yeah, he told me the idea. I got chills up and down my spine, and I convinced him that he wanted to, to write this, and we wrote up a pitch for my agent, who is now his agent, and she sold the, um, the series to Titan. But the world was not. <laughs> this was back in the golden days of Obama. Yeah, now. Free Boris Johnson, free Putin, free. Yeah. Free all the bad so stuff, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, the subtext is coming out in, in all everything we write. Oh, because, I, I know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got PTSD and we're still in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because the deeper we go into the series, the more the subtext comes to the surface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, so is, is time travel and si- something that's always interested you? You've always been science fiction fans, I take it. That's right, and fantasy. Right. And horror. So proper yeah. cross, proper cross on genre geeks then, rather than just focused on one aspect of. Yeah. Yeah. And I was always a history buff too, which made this the perfect, you know, um, uh, playground. Right. For throwing together everything you love in history. Um, in one big goulash. That's cool. So, it's be, so Shatter War is about to be published, right? So yeah. would you like to tell us all that you can about the book without serving up any spoilers because we, we hate spoilers and oh, let us yeah. know how it expands your whole story. So far, Dave. Sure. <laughs> so just to catch you up a little bit on book one, right. um, what we event, this cataclysm that shatters the timeline, a schizochronolinear apocalypse, if you will, right. um, shatters the timeline, and our characters are all from different parts of time. We've got a, a girl from modern-day America, we've got a, a first-century Celt, British Celt, um, some Victorians, and okay, you probably, this is just for the people who haven't caught up. So we have this ragtag group of people from all these different time periods uh-huh. um, who have come together, and they've discovered that... Uh, there's been this cataclysm and what caused this, what we call the event, is still happening. It's still shattering the timeline, self-fracturing the timeline. Right. So they have to save the world. Basically. And it's a time travel slash post-apocalyptic mashup because they're crossing a wilderness where over here it's 1492, over there it's 5 million BC, over here it's 1776. Right. You know, um, geography stays the same, but the time, everything, just one big jigsaw puzzle of different time zones. Um, so in book two, um, they're on their way to um, a laboratory where the agent took place, and they're discovering that maybe they can't quite trust the people who have told them that they're on the, uh, the way to save the world. There, there's some question about whether um, they, they can believe the, the, the person who's leading them on this wild goose chase, and they quickly run a field of uh, run a fowl and wind up somewhere completely different than they expected. And end up a field, yeah. Yes, a fowl field. Yeah. Can we can we talk? Can we can we say the fact that that we have Alexander? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, how much? Let's see. How much do we want to tell you where they go? Let's, let's say they go somewhere really interesting, and there's a lot more going on than we expected. Yeah, they hate spoilers more than anyone in the world. <laughs> Spoilers. You can't make out a movie. You can't say there's a female in this movie without shrieking and going, no, no, no. I kind of want to keep the surprises going. But I, yeah. I guess we could say um, it takes place, a lot of it takes place in Egypt. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of 
what, what happens is like we, we sit there, what, we go on our beach walks, and we talk about, okay, what do you want in this book? What <laughs> What is your fantasy about what you want to have? I always want to have things like, you know, megalodons and giant <laughs> reptiles and dire wolves because I love horror, and I right. like to put that in there, and I'm kind of weird that way. Uh, yeah, that. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's just a lot, everything in there is stuff that we are just like, if yeah. we could take history and save something or change something, what would we do? Yeah. Right. And also language geeks. A lot of language thrown in there, too. Our poor, our poor audio uh, narrator, Aaron Shedlock, who is just a black belt on audio book. Um, I guess the first book had, what, 15 languages? I don't remember. Wow. <laughs> he kept the, what's this uh, ancient Celtic phrase here? <laughs> anyway. So... Are there any major <laughs> grammatic shifts as far as the plot and characters are concerned? Well, that seems spoilery, but yeah, oh, okay. grammatic shifts. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, no, we can't talk about that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that, that, that would be spo- I mean, we, we have stuff planned, there's definitely stuff going on, but I don't think that we should say who or yeah, what. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, there, there are definitely yeah. some romantic shifts. Right. Yeah, and not all of them are probably expected either. Yeah. Okay, so how, how are you feeling now about because you're on the verge of the release of the book, are you nervous? Are you worried about how it's going to be received? Are you, you know, how do you feel about it? You know, honestly, we're so jazzed about it. Right. And you can't honestly, you, you just can't worry about stuff like that. You know, you, you do what you can for promotion. Yeah. You do what you can to, you know, get interest. But there's going to be people that love it. There's going to be people that hate it and are not going to be shy about saying so. And where's our reviews on Amazon and you know, you just keep writing. Yeah, and that said, the the thing that keeps us going is the critical response to book one right. was so awesome. From yeah. people. It's, there's something about having somebody you've never heard of, never heard of you, and they love your book, and that just... I love fan letters. <laughs> we do. Because when you're writing a book, it feels like the worst piece of crap ever. It's like, this is never going to work. This is, and when it's done, it's in your hands, and you're actually reading it again... Like, oh, this is the best ever. <laughs> yeah, we got a box up, and it was 3.30 in the morning, and I got up, I woke up, Dave's not in bed, I go upstairs, he's standing in the hallway reading the <laughs> shadow wall. How's it established and set the scene for the final act? Say that one more time. How does it establish and set the scene for the third and final act in the in the in the trilogy? The the, the series, as the books go on, more and more we learn more and more about what we were calling the shard world, and we go to more and more different places, and then it all wraps up when they have to save the world at the end at some terrible cost. Um, <laughs> and um. Right. Yeah. And one of the things to is that this is a trilogy. You know that the first book it ends in a good place. The second book we think ends in a good place, but there's always people that are like I have to read the third book. Ah. <laughs> you know, I think it's set up brilliantly, and I'm I'm really yeah. happy with what we've done. Uh, but we have had some cranks. We say, oh, there's a cliffhanger. Why well, hate that kind of marketing? So I'm not even going to read the other books. Like, yeah, it's why it's called a trilogy. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
I blame Trump. Everybody blames Trump. It's a good place. It's a good. He's a good person to blame. <laughs> we blame Johnson. You blame Trump. The world would be a better place without them. So yeah. They do the same thing, really. They, they clearly crank out the same bat. Oh. <laughs> anyway. So is it more? <laughs> is it more difficult writing an ongoing series or a series of standalone novels? I, you know, I, I imagine the former is far more difficult. Because it must come right in a series with its own set of mind-bending rules that you have to constantly heed. That is true. And I think the hardest part for this particular series is normally I like switching back and forth between writing nonfiction and fiction. Right. Because in nonfiction, you have to have your footnotes. You have to have your citations. You have to have your facts down cold. In fiction, you don't have to do any of that, but you have to make it all up. And in a book like this, where it's so invested in history, it was the worst of both worlds. I had to both, you had to both make everything up, and I had to do as much research as I would for a nonfiction history book. Um, you may complain that Dave loves doing research. Though. And I do, and if, you could, if your listeners can see our, our room right now, our living room, there are stacks and stacks and stacks of library books, <laughs> our books. <laughs> and I keep saying, okay, when the book is done, we'll get rid of all these, and we do, and then we get a whole new Set of files in. And, and as far as my my one series, uh, my my Spawn of Lilith series, it's an ongoing series, but each book has a specific adventure that happens, and so it's sort right. of you know you, you 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 complete an adventure, but you still want to build the world and build the character and build the overall story arc. So I and there's a big mythology. Yeah, I just think that there's there's things that are easier and things that are more difficult about about both types of. Yeah. Uh, of uh, series, I think. Um, it's all about the unfolding. Of, yeah. You know, in a short story or in a novella or a one shot, you've got to lay everything out on the table in that one thing. Right. Um, and then, then an ongoing done. series, and then you're done. Yeah. Which is great, but an ongoing series, you have a little more leeway to, to, to let things evolve and, and develop as you go along. You also have to be aware that that series could end at any time depending yeah. on that sales are going. So you damn well better make sure that if you don't have a contract for a trilogy, <laughs> if you know you're going to wrap up your story, yeah. you right. better make sure that each book ends in a really good place. Yeah. Right. So you both mentioned your previous or your other careers, Dave, with uh, being a historian and, and Donna being involved. Would you care to elaborate a little bit more on your sort of stories in, in, in those areas? Um, uh, um, on the short stories, or, or oh, no, no, no. I mean, okay. you know, just tell us a little bit more about your other careers. As you know, you mentioned you being a historian, and, and Donna, you were in films. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I actually had the usual run of all the boring office jobs and day jobs, and actually, we still do as as writers, even though we're pretty much been full time writing since two thousand eight now. Right. Uh, which is not uh, ferociously interesting. Um, as far as the, the, the short stories go, um, I had a whole range of erotica, which I'm actually super proud of because it was it was science fiction erotica, it was steampunk erotica, it was uh, horror erotica, fill in the blank erotica. Lots of history in there, and lots of history in there too. Right. Um, it, it always tickled me that I got as many I got awards for writing erotica as I did for writing history. That really <laughs> that blighted me. Um, and my my former weird <laughs> my weird past. Um, 
I started sword fighting when I was 18 because I, I met a guy who was a sword choreographer at a renaissance fair who was looking for a fight partner, and I was eavesdropping, and I basically said, yes, I want to do this, and that turned into doing renaissance fairs, doing um, different kinds of shows, uh, and then I started working in film. Yeah, I, <laughs> thank you, Kate. She's doing a little camera motion. <laughs> Um, and for a very short time um, after Army of Darkness, I worked on a horrible film called Ninja Nymphs in the 30th century, something like that. And it was this guy, Jack West, it was his very first stunt uh, coordinator job. Jack West was uh, in big trouble in Little China. He did all the wild wire work, doubling Wang. Right. Um, uh, yeah, if you've seen that film, um, at the end, there's just all of the, the crazy flipping around and, and fighting in the air and he found out that I sword fought and I ended up doing stunts on that film aside from doing a really horrible part um, and we worked together for a little while and that was just an absolute blast and then there was Army of Darkness where I was a sword captain teaching uh, the extras how to do basic sword moves so they didn't kill each other or cameramen or anything like that um, <laughs> And yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, sword fighting's just always been something that I've loved and I'm good at, better than I'm, you know, at a lot of other things. So, uh, I just ran out of steam there. No, and that's actually, that's actually how we met is through sword fighting. And LARPing. Okay. And LARPing. Oh, so you, you are proper die, die hard gamers then? Well, 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 truly. I like the LARPing better because I like it. Uh, I like the costumes. I like the, the sword fighting. I like all of that. I, right. get, I don't get into the tabletop stuff nearly as much as, as Dave, but yeah. Oh, it's been a while for me. I was a big, uh, I don't know if you guys know Steve Jackson games, the GURPS system. Oh, I love GURPS, especially the Hellboy version of it. Yeah. So uh, This was early on, um, uh, but basically, basically that was my big system in college. Okay. And uh, was big. And the fact that you could do any, you could mash up any kind of game with GURPS. Right, because it's, it's a universal system, so it works with everything. Yeah, if yeah. you're a Chicago gangster or a samurai or a ninja or, you know, a Silda Hun, it didn't matter where they were from or what they were, you could find rules and put them all in the same room together, yeah. and that was really super fun. So... I mean, I, I've always thought that a person's taste in literature reveals an awful lot about them. So, that said, if you could both recommend any five books, regardless of genre, which five would you recommend and why? Gotcha. I'm, I'm, I'm debating whether I should stick the UK or American. Um, as far as... Okay. Um, there's a writer named Jack Vance who uh, wrote in the 50s and 60s primarily. The guy who inspired Gary Gygax to write Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Him, uh, uh, Gene Wolfe and his Shadow of the Torture series and the Earth of the New Sun series. Right. Um, that just blew my mind. Um, um, oh, and now I'm starting to blank out too because I'm getting vapor locker. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Bruce Sterling, the Cyberpunk guys, William Gibson. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, this is hard for me too because there's just so many books and authors that I, I absolutely love that. I'm going to start um, Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry. If you like um, action and zombies, he's just a really, really good, fun writer. Um, 
Black Swan Rising by Lisa Brackman, which is a very scary, prescient look at America now. She wrote it before the, the mass shootings really started going crazy. Um, it's, it's a very powerful book, uh, but it's got a, a hopeful ending, so I recommend that. Um, Barbara Hamley, The Rising, uh, the, the Dark... Oh, I can't think of the name of the the Darwalk Chronicles. The Dark is Rising is a a children's series by Susan Cooper, which I would recommend also because I read that uh, when I was a kid, um, and it stuck with me. And uh, there's so many. So many. Um, As far as stuff we've read lately, um, I'm reading uh, Richard Cadre's book, The Grand Dark, which is an uh, interesting little history that I like a lot and Craig DeLuny has just written a book called Our War right um, which uh, if you're familiar with that the, the it's the idea that the American president is indicted and refuses to step down plunging the country into civil war so <laughs> what a crazy out there science fiction notion to have <laughs> and the reason I would recommend the Barbara Hamley book uh, she writes it's fantasy, but it's also really dark fantasy. She writes horror better than a lot of horror writers do, and right. I've gone back to the books. We read them over and over again, um, and I don't know how many books I've recommended. I mean, I could I could throw names and books at you all day, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so is there anything else you can tell us about the possible futures of, of the Time Shards trilogy? Um, as far as or as far as that we hope they're going to be made into movies and <laughs> well if they're made into movies that's always a good thing because you know f- film rights and then possible story yeah. rights and everything else from there that's fantastic all these things yeah. all these things so um, yeah graphic novel uh, editors and yeah. uh, and film aspiring filmmakers as far as the third book in the story goes I, I am especially happy with the way this one is wrapping up okay. and I really think that it's going to be a very very satisfying conclusion to the trilogy right. and then we hope down the road because it's such a fun world to play in we want to do more you know like short stories and novellas that there are yeah, as well there, and there's for instance in book three there's one little side thing that's sort of kind of mentioned in passing yeah and i'm thinking you know what we could a book on just yeah. that you know <laughs> uh, but definitely definitely the like, trilogy we'll see if there's anything more after that because there's we have more books in the pipeline on the non-fiction side. You do. No non-fiction for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, finally, what's next for both of you? I mean, with the book's about to be released. What's in the pipeline? What what, what, what do you have planned? Um, finishing book three. Finishing book three, which is keeping us busy at the moment. I right. need to finish book three in Lilith trilogy, and then I've got three more books planned for that, plus another YA series, uh, which is another dark, dark urban fantasy series that I'm going to co-write with my uh, my god niece. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> See what that's about. No, no. Oh, okay, okay. And I've got uh, two nonfiction books in the pipeline that've been waiting for a long time. One's on sex and Bible, uh, sex and Bible, sex and violence in the Bible. Okay. Um, on the Jehovah's Witnesses, so, continuing my my trend of doing biblical history for atheists, those two coming Okay, Donna, David, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you.
Thank you, Tim. We had a great time. Okay. Take care, Tim. Thank you. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. As I said, the first time Shard's book is out now. Second part comes out next week. Next week. Did they listen to this? Uh, it's it's, it would be it would be out. Mm. So Titan Books, we advise you to pick that up. It's awesome. So um, this month saw the uh, latest volume of the Disney Masters collection. On oh, Fantagraphics. Yeah. Uh, oh. Volume 8, The Duck Avengers Strikes Again. So, yeah, so it's... Um, Romana Scarpa? Yeah, so basically Romana Scarpa was... It's like the godfather of European Disney comics. He's an Italian artist who specialised in Donald Duck, Scrooge McDuck, Mickey yeah. Mouse. Basically the, the main... The four big main faces. And all his stuff ran between 60s and up to... I want to say 2000. Okay. Um, and Fantagraphics has started to re-release and all that stuff. I mean, it was impossible for us to see it because everything was in Italian. It was all designed for a certain market. Translated into English, it was difficult to find the comics in the UK. Yeah, the so, English translation came later, I think, didn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, it was translated for the US market rather than the English market. Right, okay, yeah. Okay, so basically, the Fantagraphics books are designed for the US market. You can get them here, but you've got to sort of get them from Amazon.com because there's no publication rights in the UK. But to me, this guy epitomises Disney cartoonists and, and Disney comics. He is the spirit and the soul of them and it was to just to see his work again and, and just laugh out loud in a comic which I haven't done in years because you, you very rarely find yourself sitting there giggling reading something to yourself while, while your family look at you what, what are you up to what have you been doing what kind of drugs have you been taking today? <laughs> have you forgotten to take your pills you lunatic <laughs> but it's that that makes you do it because it just reminds you about what it was like to be nine years older and why you fell in love with this stuff in the first place why you love this medium and why these characters work so well in that format as well as cartoons because two formats are basically interchangeable and they're all original stories it's not like they've borrowed these stories from short Disney cartoons or full length Disney cartoons they're all incredibly original stories with a rich history and mythology all of their own which builds the characters canon to the point where you just wow this I, I never knew there was so much involved in these characters I mean, I love those um, the old Scrooge McDuck stories. Yeah. And, uh, but I, just, I don't know, Donald Duck is sort of, uh, he's been a bit lost in the last few years. I don't know where his I, place is anymore in Disney. No, I love Donald Duck. Oh, me too, for sure. I mean, we, I'll give you a story, right? <laughs> Donald Duck was, when we were in Florida four years ago. So we were in Epcot and Em and my ma in the Mexican pavilion and they're having a tequila and the girls say we want to go and meet Belle. So Belle's across the other side of that I'm thinking we've got plenty of time so we came out of the Mexico Pavilion and five minutes she says well, you know one of the three caballeros is going to be there yeah so I'm like we're not going anywhere we're stopping here you're having photographs with Donald Duck that's an end of it. <laughs> I don't care if you want to have your photos with Donald Duck which they sort of did but they sort of didn't because they'd rather go and see Belle we waited to have our photos with Donald and then we went, marched across the park they're moaning because I'd get, I marched them across that park just, you want to see Belle if you want to see Belle we got to get there to see Belle because this is the time Belle's going to be there if you want to be there we got to be there so we got there and they're sitting down and the sky starts to turn and whoever it is announces these guys if a cast member comes up and says Belle's appearance has been cancelled today because of bad weather so these the girls are out you battle marches over here and it's about to start raining I'm thinking we got to get to shelter the best place to shelter is the Mexican Pavilion M and Mara having margaritas. We could join them over there and be in shelter. Girls, whoo! That's why I battle marched them across the park. Of course, then. Bad marching, we can't keep up. <laughs> and, but we didn't get wet. We made it in time. right? And then it started raining, sort of drizzling a bit, and yeah. then stopped. But I got us to shelter. And we met Donald Duck. Awesome. Because Donald Duck, yes, he sort of lost his place 
but in canon, I think maybe, but he's still the best of the big four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Donald Duck because I can relate to him. Yeah, absolute frustration and just completely wigging out. (laughs) I can relate that completely. I'm a Mickey guy, see. I love Donald. I like Mickey Mickey too, you know. There's not really one of those main Disney characters I don't like. No, that's true. I mean, it's like picking Chromex or not a friend. It is, it is. Although, my daughter doesn't like Goofy because she says he looks like a hobo. <laughs> He's like, he looks like Disney's hobo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I, I, again, I messed like, let's have our photo taken with the hobo. I'm not going to have a lie, I'm her. <laughs> I'd I'm love to see those those characters be as relevant as they were. To hope, us. Well, if the Disney Plus platform comes up, Disney streaming platform, yeah. I think, you know, something's going to happen there. They're going to become, we're going to have a place there. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Donald's become a sideline character in, in DuckTales as well at the moment. Yeah. So, hopefully, boost them up. Get Donald back. Because when back we first. think Disney, yeah, we think Mickey and Donald. And yeah. I think there's a certain generation now that think Spider-Man and Star Wars and. Yeah, I I, I guess so. I mean, I we I think we see them as separate intellectual properties that just fall under the Disney umbrella. But a lot of people see them as being that's a definitive face of Disney. Yeah, and totally. It's a bit of a shame. I mean, you know, is Spidey going to be the definitive face of Disney anymore? Nobody knows. Well, this is it. Yeah. I mean, is he gone from the MCU? Well. Lots of rumours this week, isn't there? Yeah. Sony have offered a new deal because there's been massive... They've lost share price and there's rumours Apple are going to buy Sony and if Apple buys Sony, they'll come back into the Marvel Universe because they'll do a deal with Disney. So what do we know about the deal then? So okay, the, so the deal that was in place... Right, the deal that was in place... And why was that... Right, the deal that was in place that went a bit like... Uh, in the 90s, when Marvel was on its arse... Mm-hmm. They sold character likeness rights to Fox and Sony. To Fox, they sold uh, Fantastic Four and the X Men. Yeah. To Sony, they sold Spider Man. Now, with Spider Man comes all of the vill- all the villains and characters associated with Spider Man. So you gave Venom, Carnage, Doctor Octopus, Mysterio, the whole and the rest. Of this. So that's why Sony made all those Spider Man. Then uh, Sony and Disney reach a deal so that Marvel can at last use Spider Man in Marvel films. So he makes his appearance in Captain America Civil War. And so, sorry, was, stopping you there. Was that yeah. like a one-off deal? Was it? Oh, that was a. No, no, that was the start of the deal. So okay. he appears in Captain America Civil War. That introduces Spider-Man back into the Marvel Universe. Okay, yeah. Right? So what happens then is they come to a, an arrangement when they're making the films, Spider-Man films, where Marvel provide Kevin Feige and they'll take 5% of the uh, box office yeah. tickets and Sony get all the rest. And they'll put a bit of finance in the film, and that'll be about it. But Marvel already owns all the rights to the toys and the, all the merchandising anyway, so that all passed to Disney. So Disney then say, well, look, this film's been a massive hit, and it's been a massive hit, arguably, because Kevin's been there, and you've had assistance to Marvel all the way through, and we've pushed it in the parks, we've done all this. So how about we co-finance the films all the way down the line, give you half the money to finance the films, and then we take 50% each of the box office, which is a completely fair deal. Right, so they put the same amount of money in, so there's less of a risk for Sony financially, and Disney are taking the same risk. They then get 50%. Sony say, No, 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 because we like the smell of money too much, we'll make these films by ourselves. So Disney say, All right, then. And they say to fandom, Spider Man's not going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe anymore, and this is why. So they explain the deal. Sony tried to claw some position back by saying, Oh, well, we tried to do this, we tried to do that, they didn't try to do anything, they got greedy with the money, they didn't yeah. want. Disney to have any part of it when I mean, essentially it's a Marvel character Marvel owned by Disney the rights should be with Marvel anyway 
right? But they're not okay. still sold to Sony yeah, during yeah. the desperate time. This week, apparently, Sony have offered Marvel a deal for 30%. Um, Marvel and Disney deal for 30%. And there's another rumor that Apple are going to buy out Sony. And if Apple buy out Sony, they'll take everything to Disney anyway. And they'll reach it by the merger there. So, so it looks like he will. So, oh, he will be back. This, this is like bait and switch, isn't it? So yeah. they are. Nobody wants to come away from the table looking weak. Exactly. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. But at the same time, they realise that if we don't put Spider-Man back in the Marvel Universe, the films, the Spider-Man films are going to suffer because the Marvel fans are just going to be like, screw you, Sony. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have an impact on the MCU. Anyway, because the, the way the MCU was heading, because it's not a spoiler to say about the end of Endgame now, you know? No. So, Tony Stark dies. <sighs> Spider-Man's a prodigal son. He so, Tony Stark essentially passes the crown to Spider-Man to become the central figure in the Marvel Universe. Cause yeah. The, or the, the, this last phase of the Marvel Universe, it started with Tony Stark, it ended with Tony Stark. Tony Stark passes the crown to Spider-Man. What happens now? Who knows? So hopefully a deal will be worked out and Spider-Man will be back in the Marvel Universe. There's no way that they won't have him there. It's just a matter of how much money they're willing to part with. Well, they know, both sides know how much more money it makes when Spider-Man's part of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, of course, yeah. have other Marvel characters appear in Spider-Man films and boost it's it's just a win win all round. It's so just seeing those he- seeing those headlines everywhere that he's gone from the MCU. And everyone's like, oh, oh no 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 no, because that would suck. Not but, well, yeah, especially after like Endgame. And I'm not afraid to change it. I cried in Endgame. I really did. Yeah, it broke my heart. Even after Far From Home. I mean, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, Endgame. It was that was one of the most hard. You know, all the time he's pushed this. He's Tony Stark has never given Spider-Man what Spider-Man stuff for. He's looking for a father figure, so and he's you know de- he's always trying to if you know he, look, he's always trying to hug Tony Stark all the way through. He's always trying to give him a hug. He's always misinterpreting things. And the only time Tony Stark gives him a hug is when he comes back and he finally gets that sort of father figure, yeah. that sort of embrace, and then it's taken away from him straight like, away. Ten minutes later. Yeah, yeah. It's just why not just cut off my testicles and jump up and down on them. It's so happy. You don't think, you know, you, you get to a certain age, you don't think you can go to the cinema and have an experience like that anymore. I, th- I think it's wor- I think it's worse the older you get. I think I, I've got worse. The older I've got, the well, more you have easy, kids and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, the more uh, easy I, yeah. upset I am. Anything, even slightly emotional. Before, I was a heartless bugger <laughs> before, you know, parenthood. This will not make me cry. I refuse to. I mean, I, I can count the number of times I cried during films before Mission One on one hand. And all those films I only ever saw once and I refused to watch again, right? Fox and the Hound oh, kills God. me. Kills me right? oh. Day of the Dolphin for that yeah. final last scene. Papa, yeah. Papa. No, no, no. <laughs> and E.T. I've seen it once and I've oh, never God. seen it again. I've never, ever seen it. I saw it in 1982 and, and I refuse to see it ever again. It's just not a, no. <laughs> if, even, if you, even if you see it coming to the TV, no. <laughs> I put, put it at the TV station. You can take that off right now. Take that off your schedule. It's not happening. It's oh, I know it's recognised as a masterpiece, but I just cannot watch it. It's just I can't. It's yeah, I know. completely. So yeah. final verdict then we we'll say Spider-Man's going to be back. back. Yes. He's going to be back. Absolutely no doubt about it. So yeah, take your word on that. Okay, so this year has also seen the return of Daredevil after yeah. he uh, was killed. Well, sort of nearly killed after yeah. by a. In um, what was it Death of Daredevil? Yeah, which was written by Charles Sewell, a Sewell. great, a great writer. I, I really like Charles Sewell's stuff. I mean, I know he's sort of divisive, um, and he's like a Marmite kind of guy. You either love Charles Sewell or you don't like Charles Sewell, and I love Charles Sewell. But Daredevil's always had a good run. Well, Daredevil's been quite consistent from the from the start. I mean, 
All the big characters have had lulls. Even Iron Man had a lull in right. sort of eighties, late seventies, eighties. The thing with Daredevil is that's where Frank Miller cut his teeth. Yeah, yeah. And when Frank Miller cut his teeth on Daredevil, he changed everything. That character. Everybody who's written Daredevil since has a sort of level to, to aspire to. We want to do as well as Miller did, and very few writers have done it. Kevin Smith did it with Guardian Devil. Yeah, he did. Right. Absolutely brilliant. Charles Sewell came close, I want to say, but Chip Zdarsky has just about reached that level in, his, in the first six issues. So this is the first book, isn't it? This is the first book. No Fear. It's collected as a, as a trade called No Fear. First okay. six issues. Yeah. And it is absolutely spectacular. Mind-blowingly good. It's about a man trying to come to terms with who he's become and realising that he can't do this forever. He's not the same person he's as he was. He's not the same person no. he was. He's not the same person as he was 10, 15 years ago. There's no point in trying to be that same person. But he's valiantly trying to be the devil of Hell's Kitchen. And he can't do it. Is it an age thing or is it... It's a combination of factors. It's an age thing. It's a confidence thing. It's confidence, that's what I thought it might Injuries be. catching up with him. It's Near death will do that to you. Yeah, confidence. changing world. You know, because yeah. Fisk's the mayor again. What, yeah. what can he do? Every time he tries to bring Fisk down, he comes back. Every time he tries to do something, it always comes back. And he makes some mistakes. He makes one big mistake. And then he realises that maybe it's time. I wasn't Daredevil anymore. And it's about him coming to realise is. Does Matt Murdock need Daredevil to be Matt Murdock, or does this Daredevil Matt Murdock do the two parts of his personality need each other to survive, or can he Matt Murdock survive without being Daredevil? Okay. It's a fascinating character study. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. The artwork, Marco Cicchetto's artwork is just oh, you you put sit in a dark room afterwards and just try to pull yourself down. It's that good. It's just it just pops off the page. Literally fantastic. Well, um, Chip, I mean, he's he's good with sort of. I say, street, street level street characters le- yeah and sort of very personal stories you know he, yeah. he gets underneath somebody's skin and he works them to their I mean he's done the spacey stuff as well yeah the out there stuff he does that well but he's yeah. really good with the, the, the street level yeah it, it, it's, it's great with intimate character studies and character stories I mean he's just he's done the invaders as well mm. to start running invaders and again that's another really it's a world it's a, it's a global level story it's a massive story but he makes it incredibly personal and intimate in the themes that he deals with. And it, it, at its heart, it's really about PTSD and the way war and being involved in combat can change somebody and it can have an effect on them years later. Like they wake up one day yeah. and all of a sudden their personality changed because they've remembered one small thing that happened to them. Well, the invaders were set in World War II, wasn't it? Is this? Yeah, this is set in the modern day. So this okay. is... Same team. Yeah, same team. So it's, it's Captain America, it's Bucky Barnes, witness, you know, the Witness Soldier, it's yeah. Namor, and it's the original Human Torch, the android Jim Hammond. Jim Hammond, yeah. So it's on Namor, Atlantis declaring war on Earth, and Cap and Bucky and Jim all trying to pull him back from the edge, reach out to their old comrade, because they know that something's not right. Something's happened to him to change him from the man he was to the man he's become. And it's about the way people relate to the world and the way the world relates to them and how old soldiers just never die yeah. they're always going to be soldiers and it's uh, it's yeah again it's Sadarsky just going ta-da this is how you do it pulling a rabbit out of the hat and changing the dynamic of something that you thought you knew really well into something completely different and succeeding in doing it well, I imagine a lot of it crosses over I mean the World War 2 stuff it can be seen well it's not the World War 2 stuff as much as the, sto- the current storylines cross over to the Avengers storylines where Atlantis is declaring war on Earth. Oh, okay, right, the gotcha. whole War of the Realms thing is happening at the same 
but it's it, you can read it as a standalone book you don't have to read those other books to read this because it's written in such a way that it's about those four characters and not a lot else okay cool or everything else or everything else that's happening is peripheral to the story it's been such a good year for Marvel <sighs> not just movie wise I mean some of the books they're putting out now well it's like Jim Zub's taking over champions yeah right and he takes the team who are arguably their strongest and he goes so this team are their strongest not anymore they're not let's bust them all apart and send them in their separate send them off in their separate ways and let's do it through one little deal through one little I can make this better for you if you just let me do if okay. you let me change this everything will be better and everything just changes it absolutely wrecks the whole team dynamic wow okay so that's the first volume that was out this year one in July yeah that was yeah yeah. And the second was, volume is uh, I mean, I just, December I, yeah I just caught up with the, with the first volume because you know woefully behind old man <laughs> can't read as fast as I want to glasses and all that kind of stuff but yeah okay but Jim Zub the guy who wrote it he's he is one of my favorite comic writers okay cool because um he's now responsible for Figment yeah yeah in the Disney Kingdoms line and instead of being some fluffy throwaway story he, he gets one he takes the idea of Figment and just dives really really deep and says you know, this is this is a character that can change everything it's about a spark of imagination it's about a spark of imagination that can change the world look at Figment it's about science it's about showing people science how science can change everything how you know clear empirical thinking is the way forward how your imagination and science can be blended together to form something brilliant to push forward and save the world and he is he's brilliant at doing those kind of things at taking a, a little idea moving into an into a realm you hadn't even thought about putting into it he's just yeah jim's up man jim's up rules <laughs> jim's up rules oh yeah yeah i'd make him coffee any day of the week. <laughs> no problem at all Hello everybody, this is Igor Cavalera from Peprick, Cavalera Conspiracy, and you guys are listening to Mass Movement Podcast. Okay. Do you have a track? We got some uh, music oh. this week from King of Pigs. King of Pigs, we saw these guys play with Negative Approach. Yes. And this is off their new album, which is... Hunger, Filth, Fear, Death. That's the one. Um, <laughs> All so hit up on Facebook and hit up on Bandcamp and get a copy of this, because these guys rule on live. They're just a force to be reckoned with. They're kind of like uh, they got like that old school hardcore. Yeah, so like it's sort of a 80s Boston feel going. Yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So check them out, King yeah. of Pigs. The album's out now. Hunger, Phil, Fear, Death. Check them out on Bandcamp, Facebook. Give them a like. Buy some stuff. 
get their record get their record tell them we sent you and tell them we sent you yeah. <laughs> me excited is um, Masters Universe reboot oh, on Netflix. Kevin, Kevin Smith and Mark Kevin Arden. Smith has grabbed it. I, see, I don't even. Well, I they approached Kevin Smith apparently. Apparently, the story goes is Kevin Smith's a big Masters fan, but he's kept it sort of quiet because you know he's a grown man. He's my age, and when the Masters of the Universe toys came out, we were a bit too old for toys. I mean, I don't even know about the Masters of the Universe oh, toys. Too yeah, but you're younger. <laughs> so it don't matter. It was Kevin, my age group. Bang yeah, on my age group. Exactly. Yeah. So apparently they approach him and he says yes to this thing and he brings pulls in Mark Bernard. And Mark Bernard's a great TV writer, a great comic book writer. And he does he's the co host on Fat Man Beyond. So they keep they have to keep this quiet until after Comic Con because Comic Con's gonna be the big reveal for Carnival Row and all that kind of thing. And they don't want Netflix don't want Masters Universe to lose any of its steam because of the other nice who made it. Comic-Con and traditionally Marvel make big announcements and everybody else makes big announcements and this could there was a chance to get lost in and the money yeah. yeah so, you know, so they announced it earlier last month first end of last month and so they've now gone on to explain a little bit more of what's happening and it's not so much a reboot as a continuation of the actual story because yeah. it's, it's happening after the original series ended right at the end of the original series it's carrying on that mythology from that point onwards yeah exploring some of the untold stories in between yeah. It came out of left field, I thought. Completely, I was not expecting yeah. it. It was like suddenly. I mean, I've, I've, I've wow. seen the cartoon, I watched the cartoon. Yeah. Didn't get the toys, but watched the cartoon. I always thought it's a franchise that could do with a bit of love, and it could really be good if you had some love. Well, the, the, the thing that is, it was a franchise that was entirely developed to sell a, to- a brand of toys. They came up with this idea for this series that uh, they wanted to base like on Frank Rosetta, kind of manly, big, muscly things, you know, to appeal. Because they're trying to think of something to combat Star Wars toys and all that kind of stuff. So, like, big, muscly figures who can fight each other and that's where Master of the Universe comes from love Frank so and all that stuff they developed this mythology on the fly and they sell the series because they got a cartoon series to sell the toys and so that's essentially where it comes from it's the first time it's been done really you make a cartoon just to sell the toys so the toys come first just one long advert yeah so it's basically let's introduce this character and then make a we'll make a figure this figure then we bring this character into the cartoon and it takes on a life of its own till it reaches <coughs> Dolph London. <laughs> I, I love Dolph London. I, I love Dolph London. But that film, oh god. I thought it was. I, I think it gets a bad rap. You think it gets bad? I think it you was like right. that film. I don't. I wouldn't say I don't go that far. I think it was. I don't think it's bad as people say. You don't. No. <laughs> I think it was all right. It was all right. Well, so what's all right about that film? Uh, Skeletor was ropey. Frank Langella. It was. See, a, I like Langella's performance. The prosthetics. The prosthetics were awful. Yeah, and but that that hindered his performance. I felt. He yeah. could have done it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he's perfect for the role. But I, I, also, I also blame right Masters of the Universe for Friends because they gave that they gave Courtney Cox a bloody career. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have had Friends, and the world would be a much better place. Oh, we could blame Bruce Springsteen for that as well. You don't go from dancing on stage with Bruce Springsteen into your own sitcom. You go from that into Masters of the Universe, which then pushes you. Bloody I mean, I could be guilty of roasting the classes with E-Man. What was it, 87? I was 10. 
<laughs> but the car, I mean, go back to the, the cartoon series. The cartoon series was awesome. It was, um, oh, it was just... That was fun. It's a throwaway. I mean, the thing I guess I dislike about the Master of the Universe cartoon, uh, it's a lot of 80s cartoons at the same time, is the sort of moral at the end. Oh, yeah. You have to, you have to learn something from watching the cartoon. Yeah. It has to be an underpinning moral message. Oh, cool. You have to deliver a message yeah. at the end of every episode, or Manatams, or... Do you not have parents, and maybe maybe you don't, yeah. or, or you know, do you not have? Is this is this not common sense? I don't want the television to preach to me. I can't yeah. TV to escape. But again, I'm saying this like from you know, I'm 15. I'm not 10, so I don't understand what that sort of thing means. I did everything from Michael. Did you? Yeah. Was he your moral compass? Yeah. Was he your guardian through life. <laughs> yeah. I would not be a functional adult now if it was not a master university. <laughs> I owe everything to Mattel. I hope Kevin Smith can like teach me the next part of life. Oh, mate. How good that be? Hang out with him. Hang out with him and Mark Bernard and Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please, people, tell us how to do it. <laughs> tell us how to see life. Oh, I think it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see it. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's going to be really good. Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I, You know, I, but I, it's not my, I've got to see this. It's not my Mandalorian. No, no, no. It's not on that level for me. I know it is for some people, and some people are absolutely Jones involved, and they're just, oh, we've got to see this. It's like, ah, I'm going to be the best there. <laughs> but it's not going to be the Mandalorian, okay? And it's not going to be... It's not absolutely it, essential viewing, but it's... No, I think it's going to be, I've had too much beer on a Friday night. It's my Saturday morning. How am I going to spend it? Oh, what's massive universe? <laughs> it's going to be one of those yeah. things, for me, at least. Definitely. Hi, this is H from Acid Rain, and you are listening to the Mass Movement Podcast. Good idea, that. I heartily endorse this podcast. The new Acid Rain album has finally dropped. Oh, God, it's so good. Oh, man. It's the best thing they've done. Acid Rain completely passed me by because they, they put out Fear. Yeah. Um, 89, I think. Yeah. 90s, Yeah, um, so I was just getting into stuff, that, you know, that sort of stuff then, but Acid Rain was never given to me. I never checked it out until, like, recently. They were right in the middle of my thrash metal time. Yeah, okay. They, they appeared, sort of. Out of nowhere. I think um, there's someone that I think they're really underrated, and I don't know, I don't know what happened. Live, they, all, they, they live, disappeared. live, they were just a force to be reckoned with again. They were just one of these bands who you go see, you knew you had a good time. They supported and, Nuclear Assault, didn't they? Yeah. On the UK tour. And here's and they came close to actually blowing Nuclear Assault away. Wow. And they were that good. And you you, you look at them and you're thinking that this is such a great band. And I was, I was sort of drifting out of thrash metal towards that time, and because I found hardcore and punk rock and I was moving more into that thing so by the time Acid Rain called it a day I sort of moved out of the whole thrash thing and it, to me it wasn't so much as oh where they gone as oh well they just another one of those thrash bands that disappeared yeah now, I don't know why this I'm asked H this but I, at some point I, I, I suppose I will because um, the new lineup is it's literally H and you guys isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's so well, it's such a good album I think it's I saw them they played Pretend the Hobos, Pretend they? Hobos yeah. a year and a bit ago yeah and they were just as good live as they as they always were right and, and you've got a guy who's maybe a year two years older than me H I think he's two years older than me stage diving and slamming around like that I couldn't I haven't been, I haven't been up to that for a decade yeah. before I saw him because my knees are shot my, you know, my, I can't stage dive like that I'm not in that kind of shape and he's still doing it now and he's in incredible shape and he's just as good a front man as he was then if not better because he's got 
age, you know, he's got age and experience behind him, and he's no wise. He's not going to shoot his mouth off maybe and say the wrong things or upset anybody because he knows who he is now. And you, you don't know who you are before you're 25 or 30. No, it's just his learning process. He's discovered who he is. He's got all this hit musical history with him. So now they're just even better with this new album. Wow. Just yeah, it's called the the Age of Entitlement. Yep, any day now. Okay, um, cool. But we should have an interview with H in the next for the next episode. Excellent. Yeah. So, so tune cool. in us now for that. Why do you think like um I mean it's making such a comeback, Sash? You know, I think the old bands are coming back on the form. Yeah. Is it the Reagan thing happening over again? Possibly. Um, or it could be a lot of the guys are reaching middle age and their midlife crisis is. <laughs> Let's have another go doing this. Okay. We've got unfinished business doing this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said, you know, I had unfinished business playing hardcore. I did yeah. my thing, and I finished my business playing hardcore, and that's. It. But I think these guys have a point to prove. Acid Rain, they had nothing to prove. I think they're doing it purely because they want to do it. And the time's right, and they've, you know, H still got music in him. He still wants to do this. I get out there and prove to everybody that they were real contenders. Yeah. And they weren't just a comedy thrash act. They weren't just thrash clowns. There was more substance to it than that. And this new album proves that. It seems to me they've got something to say. And, you know, the world at the moment, how it is, just lends itself to thrash metal, angry, sort of yeah, aggressive. It's, it's like what I was seeing a, a rise of great hardcore bands. You know, political oppression produces fantastic music. And yeah. that's what's happening. It's like Exhorder coming back. Their new oh, album. God, yeah. More than Southern Skies. Again, another, another example. Yeah, it was... That is the best album Pantera never made. Because if it wasn't Flick's Order, Pantera would never have had a career. That's that's the truth. Because Pantera ripped Exorder and everything else off. What's the um the phrase I read earlier? Exorder. Yeah. A Pantera without without good production or without money. Yeah. Going. Without money going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, and so th- this new album, Morning Sun Skies, is just a total face ripper. Um, they've come back. They said, well, they're they're leaner, heavier, meaner, faster. And Kyle's and voice is as good as it's ever been. Kyle's voice is just amazing. I mean, he's always he proved, a good voice. Well, he proved that when he was with Alabama Thunderpussy for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. He dude is fantastic. And he's a really sweet bloke as well. Okay. Because I interviewed him when he was in Alabama Thunderpussy. Because oh, they cool. played Swansea Sin City to a crowd of about 40 people. But they, they played like their lives depended on that night. They were just incredible. And now he's back with the sword. He sounds better than ever. It's just a monstrous album. It's heavy, it's tight, it's mean. And they sound like they, they never went anywhere. They awesome. just sound like they've been doing this their entire lives, which they have essentially with, with a 30-year break. You know? The time is right for its order, though. It's like, again, oh, it goes back to it's, all it's like the angriest thrash album I've heard in uh, a few years. I was listening to it, I was thinking Circle Pit. Oh, you know, and I'm, yeah, I'm listening to it. I think if I was dancing to this right now, I'd be in need of medical care for two weeks. <laughs> because there's no way I'd survive a pit. Not anymore. I just couldn't. <laughs> I, it would kill me literally absolutely dead but talking about being old uh, there's a new book out BHP 1991 to 1995 it's a collection of fanzines well it's, it's a collection of one fanzine sorry all yeah all this is a BHP yeah, yeah. one I mean maybe it might have been a bit before your time a little bit yeah I caught the arse um, end of it but it was it was one of those compulsive scenes you, I read compulsive it's like our core it's like flip sides like suburban voice and maximum rock and roll I read BHP because it was sort of at that time when punk rock was starting to really get a little bit bigger and wind its way out you know yeah. bands were starting to spring up in the UK and a lot of American bands were over and it you know, it, it interviewed the bands it spoke about what was happening it was just one of those scenes where you're going yeah I want to read this yeah it, it documents the period of time in music that's essentially like forgotten by some people because they always say oh well 
punk rock didn't strike big until 1995, 1996. There's a lot more to it than that, and BHP was sort of their catalogue in that right. It's like a snapshot of, of that time, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just a compilation of all the old scenes put yeah. into one book. It's fantastic. And I mean, the guy who was responsible for BHP, David, uh, went on to form Engineer Records. Right, okay. like one of those sort of underground heroes who people sort of pass over. When you talk about like, oh, who are the people who push punk rock forward in the UK or part in making hardcore bigger in the UK and he is was right on the list. for that yeah. he, was, he was one of the catalysts for making that happen and yeah. people see always tend to sort of brush over him and, and not mention him but between BHP and Engineer Records this guy's been around for well as long if not longer than me you know when, I, when I, was, I was reading the book it just made me feel it made me realise how much I love zines and how much I miss them I miss scenes like there's no tomorrow. There's a, there's a weird... I mean, we still read interviews now online, but there's just a weird... <clears throat> the whole cut-and-paste process of it, and just the... Oh, I don't know, it's just the satisfaction, right? They used to go with cut-and-paste. Okay, so you, you make... you All your pages were ready, and you have a template, and you put the template together, then you photocopy it, and then you, you know, staple all that together. It used to be a painstaking process, and it was a pain in the ass. But when you had that finished product in your hand, and you thought, this is my work that just and it's it's just it's a crappy fanzine, but it was something you'd put together. And this crappy fanzine is then read by hundreds and hundreds of other people and you're thinking, We can't produce enough of these to keep up with the, the number you want. Yeah. And you can't afford to put the time in and have a life as well. Something's gotta give. Yeah. Which is why I've got no life. Because I I never understood that there was a balance between doing this and actually trying to find a life and have some sort of career. This took over from everything else to me. Um, well, I was somebody yeah. who always wanted, from high school, I wanted to get into media, I wanted to get into journalism. Right. You know, I was in a shitty high school that told me, you know, the best advice they could give me was to read the Sunday papers. That's the best advice they could give me in career move. And I, when I discovered fanzines, it was like, there's a whole other world out there. Yeah. You know, it, it's not just, you know, there's a whole other um, way of doing things. Which the, it's the ethos of doing yourself. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah, because I was... I started writing for like the local newspaper when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was writing theatre reviews and film reviews and all that kind of stuff because they would get me free tickets because my mom worked for them. Yeah. They'd send me off to do the reviews because they didn't want to do the reviews. They wanted to go to the pub. <laughs> so they'd go and hang out on the bar and send me at the show to see the show and I'd go and see the show and then I'd write the review. Okay. And I'd get a byline. So this sort of stuff is in your blood. Ink gets it. The same as ink gets in your blood. And it does. And I want, at some point, I'll bring Mass Rubin back into print. Somehow. I, I really will. It will happen. Even if like book form like this, there would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, so you know, essentially, we'll we'll we're going to do it um, because it gets in your blood, and there's nothing like a zine, you know. And there's there's still some great scenes around because Arcor is still being produced, and Arcor is just incredible. I mean, my favourite scene of all is this Dead, done, which was Flipside. Oh yeah. And I love Suburban Voice, and I loved In Effect because In Effect. In Effect was, was amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Max and Rock and Roll was just closed its doors. But the Maximum Rock and Roll, for the last 10 years or so, I was buying it, maybe 12 years I was buying it, I was only buying it for George Tabb's column. Literally, I would, I, would buy, I would buy it, and I would read Rev Norb's column, and then I'd read George Tabb's column. I'd always save George Tabb's column to last, because George Tabb is the is my reason for doing everything. He's the reason I write. Maximum R&R, do you think it had a bit of an agenda, though? Um, that depends. I mean, people say I had a political agenda, and there was a political edge to it, and it changed with each incoming editor. Hmm. I think maybe it wanted to try to epitomise what it thought punk was. Okay. And it saw anything wasn't what it thought it was as a danger or a threat. 
Um, I know AF had problems with Maximum Rock and Roll, and rightly so, because yeah. I think Maximum Rock and Roll did a hatchet job on them God, they really for did. their own reasons. Mm. And I know there's a couple of bands have been had issues with them. I know Jello Biafra had an issue with them at one point, but they just they just did what they did. And I don't, you know, you've got to respect that they did what they did. They didn't care what anybody else thought. They had their audience. And they did it for that audience. Which brings us back to BHP, which is what David did at the time. He did his zine, the zine was done for him, and the book is a perfect way of cataloguing a period in UK hardcore and punk history that maybe a lot of people don't think about anymore, or maybe a lot of people sort of pass over, and it's just a great book. I mean, you can pre-order it on Amazon now. It's definitely worth checking out, yeah. Earth Island Publishing. It's an ode to the way things were, and it's perfect. If you want to know what the UK scene was like, if you want to know what punk rock was like in the early 90s, this is the book Yeah, to read. This is just a snapshot of that time captured in posterity. Perfect. Should we have a track from High Command? Oh, High Command. High Command. What a brilliant band. These dudes rule. The uh, album is Beyond the Wall of, of Desolation. Desolation. And it's sort of like, I, I personally, I think it's Seven Churches, Era Possessed, meets yeah. Flag of Hate Creator, with a ton a bit of, of Celtic Frost. Throw, a bit of Celtic Frost and a ton of strife thrown in. It is just a... That's a hell of a mix. Yeah, but it, what it'll do is it'll get your old bones out of your chair and put the thing on the slam again. You can't. Right? And, you know, you'll dance around for 15 minutes and realise why you need paracetamol after listening to this record. <laughs> this is the Mike Man. Check him out. <laughs>
That is awesome. That is the, that is the ticket. So that's High Command. New album up now called Beyond the Wall of Desolation. <laughs> it's on Southern Lord. Grab it, slam it, just dance your little heart out to it because it is incredible. Southern Lord. Wow. <laughs> They've changed all the years, haven't they, Southern Lord? Yeah, but the guy who founded the label, Greg, he, he's a, he's an old school hardcore kid. Greg Anderson? Yeah, because he's gone on to do Sunno and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jody Wank nonsense, which <laughs> I don't get. I just don't understand it. I can't listen to that. It's like, well, how can you make one note into a song and you, you can't? <laughs> they break buildings with their music, though. Uh, why? <laughs> anyway, I um, caught up with Knock Loose this week. Right. New Wave of Hardcore. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. New album, uh, Different Shades of Blue. I, I've, I've given a glowing review on Mass Movement. I really do think it's where the line has been drawn is and, and hardcore is changing. This will be where we come back in years to come. It'll be like, that's where it changed. Yeah? Yeah, it's taken some old school elements. It's a lot of new school, a lot of death metal in there. But um, ultimately, I think, yeah, this is where we can see hardcore has changed. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I caught up with Isaac, the guitarist, and right. uh, we had a little chat. And uh, some listen to that, shall we? Hi, Isaac. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Hey, how you doing? You okay? Yeah, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Not so bad, not so bad. I'm literally not doing anything today, so... <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, okay, we'll start at the beginning. You were formed in Kentucky around 2013, is that right? Yes, sir, that is absolutely correct. I've been playing with some of the members of the band for just jamming with them for longer than that, but uh, and not loose as an entity, like as that band name started in 2013. Okay, so did, how did you guys know each other? I mean, were you school friends? I'm way younger than the rest of the guys, but basically, me and our drummer Paxton, um, me and our drummer Paxton knew each other from school. He introduced me to the rest of the friend group that was way older than me, and basically, we just started hanging out, writing music pretty much every week. We were just friends that would hang out and play uh, very consistently, and uh, after that. Um, after that happened, we just eventually got to the point where we focused on the sound and focused on the name and actually got serious about releasing music. And that's when, you know, Knock Loose was created. We were just hanging out, being friends, writing music for a really, really long time. But eventually we were able to kind of develop our own sound and kind of just decided that we wanted to take it more seriously. And that's when we actually started playing shows. Sure. So in those early days, what sort of bands were, were influenced on you then? Uh, and, I mean, we were all so new. When, when Knock Loose started, um, we hadn't been into hardcore for very long. We were all very new to the genre. So everything was coming in at once, you know, like it, there were so many influences coming in at once because we were all discovering new things like we were all getting into going to more shows and listening to more bands hearing from older guys what bands to listen to so it was crazy because it, we would be listening to everything and taking it in all at once so maybe it was strife maybe it was mad ball maybe it was disembodied maybe it was more metalcore stuff like maybe it was martyr ad maybe it was poison the well maybe it was converged like all these influences were coming to us at one time mixed with the old influences that we already had before listening to hardcore music. So I'd say that when we started, we were a pretty open book and it took us a while to kind of develop a sound and pick out which parts of what we liked and what we wanted to play. Um, it definitely took us a second 
uh, I'd say it took us a couple of years to develop what we actually wanted to develop because back then we were also, you know, we were all so young and taking in so much music at once it was hard to narrow down what we wanted. But I think that more recently we've kind of honed in on a sound that we really enjoy. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously you're a hardcore band, but there's, to me at least, I think there's a death metal influence there as well. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, especially more on the new record than ever. Yeah, um, I noticed and that. And I think that, uh, and I think that a lot of that has to do with us playing the old songs for for so many years. We really wanted to develop a sound that was a bit more challenging to play and just faster and more exciting. And I think that that was that was something that we were thinking about while we were writing it. Which we wanted these songs to be faster. We wanted these songs to be heavier. We wanted them to be more exciting. And so even though the death metal thing wasn't really something that we were we were chasing on purpose, I mean, everyone in Knock Loose loves death metal and death metal bands, but it's not really something that we were chasing. It's more so we wanted something that was a bit more exciting, a bit more, you know, a bit faster, way heavier, way more intense. And I think that just because we were right we wanted to write music that sounded that way it just ended up coming out more death metal yeah i, I mean the new album um to me seems a lot darker than laugh tracks i mean lyrically uh, musically um so was that something you were aspiring to do uh yeah i i we wanted to we wanted we didn't really know what was going to happen going into writing we didn't really have a set sound that we wanted we just knew that we wanted to, we wanted to one up ourselves. We wanted to blow laugh tracks out of the water. We didn't want to have a sophomore slump. We wanted to come out of the gate with something that we were really proud of. And we wrote for many years on this new record. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we had written for years didn't make it. We may, we may have written and scratched pretty much an entire album before we ended up with the songs that would make this record. And it's just because we weren't satisfied with it. So while we didn't go into it, we didn't go into it knowing exactly what we wanted out of it. We just knew that it had to be better. And we wrote a bunch of these songs and we pumped them out pretty fast when we got, got on a roll. And I think that once we started writing songs and that we enjoyed the way those songs sounded, that's when we were like, okay, we can now see a, a like more full-fledged idea of what the record's gonna be. Sure, um, yeah. So when we, started, when we started writing songs that we enjoyed for the new record, that's when we got the idea of like, okay, it's going to be faster. Okay, it's going to be darker, okay. But yeah, it took us a while to get there. Um, I wanna talk about um, Brian. He's, I mean, to me, anyway, he's one of the more genuinely angry front men I, I, I mean at least on record and live in hardcore in recent times i mean he's just when you hear him on record he's so passionate he, he's not just phoning that in where, where does that come from I and mean, where, where does his lyrics sort of come and his and his delivery come from um his stage presence and his uh you know his demeanor on stage has really really developed over the years i think that just like the rest of us he is you know, playing is a very, very necessary part of our lives and getting motion out, getting that negative energy out is a very, uh, it's a very necessary part of what we do and yeah. uh, and how we live. And I think that it's basically just an expression of 
negative emotion kind of put out in a positive way. Um, and so that's, and he's just found ways to better kind of hone that in and focus that in and just like the rest of us have. And, and his lyrics, you know, this time around, I can't talk too much on them because he's a very personal guy and a lot of his lyrics on this new record are extremely personal and, he, you know, he was very introverted while he was writing it. It's very personal for him. But I just think that the record deals with the main theme of the record. It's not a concept record or anything, but the main theme of the record is, you know, sadness and loss. And I think that hanging out those lyrics, it, it, you know, it put him in a certain headspace and I think that it's very clear what kind of headspace he was going through sure. um, while, you know, doing the record. And that just adds to, you know, the fact that the music that we play, the live show, it's all a release of emotion for everyone. So, um, yeah, it was, it wasn't even done on purpose. Just when he, when he started writing, he found a theme that he wanted. He put himself there in his head and he just rolled with it. And uh, even though it's very personal for him, I think he came out with something that he was really proud of. You've got a, uh, you come back to the UK this uh, autumn. I caught you on the last UK tour. You got any sort of favorite memories of your time in the UK? I have a bunch of great memories in the <laughs> UK. Knockloose loves playing the UK. Um, we had ever since we played it the first time. I don't know, I, looking back, like our first time setting foot in the UK, it was just a really positive experience from the beginning because you kind of get, after being in Europe, I'd say that the UK, even though while being alien in certain aspects, is still more familiar than mainland Europe, you know? Yeah. So it's just, it kind of feels like a second home to everyone, I feel like. The shows there have always been batshit insane. I remember yeah. specifically being able to play Underworld for the first time yeah. back in 2016 in London. Being able to play Underworld, that show was probably our first Psycho UK show. And it literally felt like we were playing in a hometown. Just everything felt so, you know, close to home. Everyone was so kind and the show was so insane. And I don't think that that's something that we're going to forget anytime soon. We still think about that show all the time. So yeah, well, I, I saw you at the Cardiff that, show. That. Oh, very, very cool. Yeah, yeah I saw you at the Cardiff show, and that, that was, I mean, that was packed. It was, the walls were sweating. It was crazy. And I thought then, exactly. this, this this felt special. This felt like a special gig, and like, yeah. something was changing the, in the hardcore. Shows, yeah, absolutely. The UK shows have always been just, they've had a certain vibe to them, a very special feeling. It's a place that we obviously can't go quite as often as, you know, play as often as America. So every single time we play there, we take our time there very seriously. We take our shows there very seriously, and we're all very, very excited to come back. Cool, man. Okay, just uh, one last one to finish off then. A little bit of a, a fun one. So what did, what would your dream for band tour look like? Ooh, this is a hard one. <laughs> um, I'm probably going... This is tough. I'm probably going to... Knockloose would probably open this package. But just, I'm just going to throw out three bands that were super important to me even before I got into hardcore growing up. Okay. The first band that I ever listened to, heavy band that I ever listened to with my dad was Metallica. So cool. I'd probably put them at a headlining slot at the dream band. One of the first bands that really, really, really mattered to me when I was a kid finding music, one that I found by myself is Korn. So I'd probably put Korn at okay. that second slot. And then a band that 
really, really influenced how I play guitar and, you know, the kind of, you know, the mosh parts that I write, the breakdowns I write, some of the parts that I write would probably be Meshuggah. Oof, uh, yeah. These are all bands that I've been able to see in this past year. So, like, a Metallica Corn Meshuggah with Knock Loose opening tour would probably be the craziest thing. <laughs> I would pay to go see that. That would be awesome. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Uh, thanks for your time and I'll speak to you again soon of course man thank you so much for talking take care thanks a lot cool hope you enjoyed that that was uh, Isaac from Knock Loose well, I guess uh, that's about it for this time eh? yeah we've got to give some shout outs Fantagraphics for the whole Disney Masters line because yeah. they are just they are smashing it out of the park just hit their site up or hit Amazon.com and order all that stuff like now if you can afford it spend all your paycheck just do it <laughs> like Isaac from Knock Loose it was uh, lovely speaking to him mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully be catching them on the road David Gamage and Earth Island because you've got to read BHP find out what it was like for us oldies back in the day HMS Rain as always oh HMS Rain because dude's lovely and the album's fantastic and hopefully he'll be on the show next week time we're on rather Tim's arse for being so pinchable oh isn't it isn't it ever as ever and uh, Donna Fredstein and David Fitzgerald for speaking to us about time shards because they are incredible people okay cool so don't forget to check us out on Podbean you can download the app for free or you can go to massmovement.co.uk and listen to us there. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit the like button and share. And we're going to be on iTunes soon as well, apparently. And we're going to be on iTunes soon we saw the app work out. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, next time we'll have an exclusive interview with one of the first brothers of metal, Igor Cavalera from Cavalera Conspiracy and obviously Sapatura. He's got a new project called Pet Brick, which I managed to grab him for a chat about. So make sure you don't miss that one. Until then, ta-ta. Bye-bye.